know that uh, some of you will need to explain to some of the people around you who that was. Um, <laughs> not to pick on anybody, but our worship minister never watched this show before in his life. <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, yeah, it's, it's okay, it's okay. Uh, we'll, we'll get to the details of that here in a minute. I apologize for, for missing the, the opening. What I was going to do at the opening, we'll just do at the close and, and things like that, because there's some important things that we, we definitely need to, to address and talk about. But in, in the spur of the moment, I want to start just by reading uh, from God's Word. So we're in Luke chapter 6, Luke chapter 6, verse 1 is where we'll start today. We're going to do a little bit of the beginning of this, this chapter in Luke. Jesus is in the middle of this story here, and you'll understand the connection with the video very shortly. Verse 1, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them together in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Let's pause there. It's, it's just another round. If you were with us as we studied through the miracles of Jesus, you kept seeing time and time and time again as the, the Pharisees would be the one to find Jesus performing these miracles and healings on the Sabbath and questioning him. So it's just another one of those stories. It's like this. It's like there's a bunch of little henchmen everywhere Jesus goes, hiding behind every little corner. And they've got a clipboard. They've got a clipboard there, and they're just waiting, watching every little move he makes, seeing what rules is he going to break today? And the rules were listed, absolutely. If you want to look it up, if you're curious, sometime you can do this. It's, it's very easy to do. Just search the word Shabbat. Shabbat is how it's pronounced. 7-2. It's from the Jewish Mishnah. And where there you will find 39, a list of 39 prohibited activities for the Sabbath. They even had a name for it. Very fancy name. I don't know if you'll be able to figure it out. It was called the, the 40 minus 1. I know, very creative. I don't know why the Jews did such things, but they did the same thing with lashes. It's just one of those things. Anyway, so there they were. They had their list. They see Jesus do something, anything that might possibly be a violation of one of those rules, and they pop up out of the grain field and say, ha, gotcha. You can't do that. It's not right. I see you picking grain on the Sabbath. That is against the rules. Then, then you're not just picking it. Oh, no, no. You're rubbing it together in your hands. Oh, my goodness. I'm going to write you up a citation. Even better. Citizen's arrest. That's right. You are going to jail, Jesus. That's just the way it is. The disciples were guilty. Listen, the disciples were guilty of reaping, threshing, winnowing, and preparing food all on the Sabbath. Four laws they broke in that moment. That's how strict it was. Now, don't get me wrong. If their motivation, the motivation of the religious leaders was to truly instruct people in the ways of God, to help them grow and observe the law, then these events, you know, they might not have been so bad, really. But that wasn't their motivation. Verse three, Jesus answered them, have you never read what David did? And his companions, when they were hungry, they entered the house of God. They took the consecrated bread, and he ate what was only lawful for the priests to eat. And then he gave some to his companions, to his friends. Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So what did Jesus do here? Well, he asked them a question. Have you read? Jesus was not their English teacher. Okay? He wasn't making sure they did their homework last night. They've all read what we would call 1 Samuel 21 and 22. Obviously, they didn't have those numbers in their text. But he doesn't think that they quite understand what was happening in that scene. On the very simplest level, Jesus said that the great King David broke the law by eating the consecrated bread. And he was not accused by, by them, anybody, of doing anything wrong, in other words. He could have, um, they looked at that as, well, that was David. And he's looking at them, he's like, yeah, but I'm Jesus. <laughs> if you knew who I was, you wouldn't have thought I had done anything wrong. He could have pulled some kind of Jedi mind trick and said, hey, guys, my disciples did not violate the Sabbath. It's all okay. Move along. He could have absolutely done that very easily, but he didn't. He didn't. He really wanted to explain things. And his explanation either means one or of two things. It really doesn't matter which one. But there's one or two things we're pretty certain it meant. Either A... God's law was never intended to keep people from meeting their most basic needs like eating. 
So David then becomes the example of what the law truly meant. His men were very, very hungry. They needed food immediately, and this was available to them. Or Jesus is saying that there are special situations that can cause the law to be superseded in order to meet a specific need. And either way, God ends this conversation. Jesus literally ends this conversation by just saying, hey, guys, um, I am Lord of the Sabbath. And so in the end, the discussion is over here. And um, since I created it, I can kind of do whatever I need to on the Sabbath. That's how I define it. Now, before we think the religious leaders are crazy here, all right, and just going just, just nuts with their rules and everything else, I want to challenge us to look deeply, deeply, deeply into our own lives and our own ways. Because as believers, it is easy to fall into the trap of legalism. It can show up in so many different forms. We might somehow think and believe that our obedience to God somehow helps us gain favor with our Lord and Savior, that our obedience somehow justifies us before our God, and that is impossible. The only way our obedience would justify anything before our God is if our obedience was perfection. We never had one single misstep. That is the only time we would merit any favor from God. And you and I both know we can't do that. It's the only way we could ever gain favor with God is, is through his son, Jesus. That's why he came, because we couldn't fulfill the law perfectly. Some, though, um, take it even a step farther. They look at the failings of others and somehow use those failings to help justify their own failings and then condemn those other people. So the question becomes, are we the ones hiding in the grain field, waiting, watching for people to mess up so we can call them on it, whether they're believers or not? Some of us actually apply the standards of Jesus, the standards that we have in Scripture to non-believers who don't even know the standards set in Scripture yet. We're going to talk a lot about that next week when we talk about Jesus' teaching on judging others. But instead of judging, let's just leave it here today. Instead of judging others for falling short, believer or not, of that standard that they may or may not even know about, how about this? How about we show them the love of Jesus and that the reality is they're on a path that's leading only one place, and that's to destruction. How about we show them his love and through that love show them another path, a much better path that God actually has laid out for their life to help guide them off of that path that leads to destruction and onto that path that leads them to eternal life. Now, in order to guide someone along a path, you're going to have to walk beside them. And as you walk beside them, they're going to see your life, and it's not perfect, but they're going to see your life, and they're going to notice that you do things differently. And when they notice that you do different things, they're going to ask you, why do you do different things? You're going to get a chance to share with them about your Jesus and where your guidance comes from. And you're going to get a chance to explain to them how God's ways for your life are so much better than our own ways for our life. And then we can take them to a place where Jesus then reveals to them how much he loves and cares for them and the links that he went to to prove that love to them. In essence, that's what Jesus did for 12 men. There was a multitude of others, but 12 men specifically, the ones that we call disciples or apostles, depending on your terminology, those 12 men, their paths to Jesus looked very, very different just like their professions were very, very different. And Jesus chose them as they were from where they were. And that is so important. He called them to be part of something just incredible, something great. If you know any of their individual stories, I want to ask you a question. Which one of the 12 disciples earned their way onto the team? Which one of them went through tryouts? You know, I'm a coach, right? So which, which one of them went through tryouts to make their way, to, to earn their starting job, you know? How many of them put in years and years and years of hard work preparing them to be good enough so that Jesus would notice them and then select them from the crowd of everyone else because they were so much better than everybody else to follow him? Some of you are looking at me very strangely right now because you're like, well, pastor, that didn't happen at all. No, it did not. He, none of those things happened at all for any one of those people. Luke 6, verse 12. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray. 
And he spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them, whom he also designated to be apostles. Then the names, Simon, whom he called Peter, his brother Andrew, James and John, who were also brothers, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, Judas Iscariot, and who became a traitor. Now, to someone that just opens up our Bibles, and they just happen to open to this list in the book of Luke, it looks like just a boring list of names that don't even have last names. It's a cultural thing. We look at them and we just wonder, because there's very few of them that even have a description in this particular list. Simon, whom they called a zealot, we don't know exactly what that means. We have some ideas. The names don't reveal their full stories. There were four, at least, fishermen there. Four fishermen who'd already begun taking over the family business, at least until the oldest of the group had an encounter with Jesus that not only changed his life, but his younger brother's life, as well as a couple other fishermen, James and John. Why? Why? All because of a teaching, a teaching that took place from their boat out in the Sea of Galilee, which then led to a miraculous catch of fish that no one could have possibly explained. Well, then you've got Levi or Matthew, as it's written in your scriptures, a Jewish tax collector, a man who betrayed, sold out his own people to work for the Roman government. He probably was a little more educated. He definitely was a little more wealthy than the other disciples. Why? Why would Jesus choose a man that betrayed his very own people? He was a sellout and hated by his Jewish people, the very people who Jesus was initially trying to reach. It doesn't make any sense. Not at all. No earthly sense in the world why he would pick a person like that until you get to the end of the story and you read the gospel of Matthew written by a tax collector. And who was the gospel of Matthew written to? It was written to the Jews, the people he betrayed. And his life mission then was to try to convince the people that he betrayed that this Jesus was their Messiah too. That's why Jesus picked him. He knew his heart, his true heart, trying to convince them that Jesus was that Messiah, not an easy task. Then there was Simon, a zealot, as they say. Simon might have been, we don't know for sure, maybe he was just a very zealous person, that's possible, but he also might have been in training to be an actual zealot, a group of Jews, it was a Jewish sect called the zealots. They were bent on revolution, overthrowing the Romans, getting them out of the way. They were looking for a Messiah, but their Messiah had to be, had to be a strong military leader in order to fill the role they were seeking to fill. And it's interesting that Simon's name is all that's ever mentioned about him. There's never any further description of Simon throughout the New Testament. Bartholomew, who is also called Nathaniel, so if you think those are two separate people, they're not. Thomas, both of those two might have been fishermen. There's some thinking that maybe they were. Philip, Thaddeus, James, son of Alphaeus, and then Judas. We, we don't have any idea where those guys came from. We don't know anything. There's some church tradition, but we really don't know. There's nothing recorded in God's word. Were they friends? Maybe they were friends of the other disciples who just kind of got brought along. What did Jesus call them from in order to follow him? When you think of it, there was nothing remarkable Nothing that separated these individuals from anyone else in all of Jewish society. In fact, one of the ones Jesus chose ultimately sold him out for 30 pieces of silver and probably stole some other money along the way. And Jesus never even kicked him out of the group. So when you think it's just a list of names, and even if we don't know a lot about the individuals, here's what we can glean from that. Jesus chose everyday, average, normal people. It's just like me. And just like you. And those 11 of those 12 ordinary, average, everyday people changed the world. It's an incredible thing to think about, but they didn't do it by themselves. They did it with the gift and the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is the same spirit. We have not lost contact with that spirit of God. That is the same spirit that you and I have access to today. 
However, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your own Lord and Savior, and you've invited him into your heart, then you don't just have access to the Spirit. No, no, no. You have the Holy Spirit of God living within you, dwelling within you. But there's always another question I ask when I talk about the 12 disciples. And my question is this, how many more people did Jesus ask? Now, some might say, well, none, because he needed 12 to represent the 12 tribes. Yeah, you know what? Okay, whatever. Now, Jesus knew there were only going to be 12 say yes. But how many more did he ask? We don't know because there's not a lot of information given. But we do know of one for absolute certain that he asked to leave everything and join him. And we'll study that a little later on in Luke chapter 18. He was called the rich young ruler, but he didn't accept the invitation to leave everything behind and follow Jesus. In reality, it's no different today. Many, many, many people will be invited to follow Jesus, but very few will choose to follow. Some of us believers that don't really like personal evangelism and reaching out to people use that as an excuse. Well, they probably won't say yes anyway. Well, they probably won't want to listen to me. Well, I don't really want to talk to that person on and on it goes. Here's the key. Here's what we can learn from this. Very simply, we don't get to pick and choose. We don't get to look at another person and decide, you know, I don't think they'll follow Jesus. So I don't really need to be the one to tell them. We have to leave that between them and God. Our job is to invite them in. If it were left up to you, rewind back to the disciples, if it were left up to you and me as as followers of Jesus, would you have walked up to those fishermen on the Sea of Galilee and said, hey, I want to share something with you. Would you have tried to convince them to leave the family business to follow this Jesus that you were following? How many of us would have walked up to the tax collector booth to Matthew? Hey, Matthew, uh, here's the thing. I, I know everybody hates you, but I'm following this guy, Jesus, and I think you'd really, I think you, I think you'd really like him. I, th- I think there's, would you have had that conversation with Matthew? Maybe the fishermen, they were normal. Matthew? Take it a step further. Let's fast forward a little bit into the book of Acts. There was this man named Saul. This man named Saul, who you absolutely knew was about killing Christians, putting them in prison. He stood and watched over the first Christian martyr, Stephen, die. Would you have gone to Saul and said, Hey, Saul, I know you're trying to kill me, but let me tell you about Jesus. That's probably a lunch meeting I would have missed. I'm just going to be honest with you. I don't know how you feel. And look at what I would have missed out on, because I was a coward. Think about it. Think about it. We don't want to miss out on who God might be calling to him today. So who is it that God is calling you, leading you to have conversations with in this world? Who will you be standing inside the doors of this building or saving a seat for next week that you've invited? Who is that person going to be in your life? And hopefully that becomes a plural, persons. A little farther into Luke, Luke 6, 17, we'll continue down the mountain. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples were there from all over Judea, Jerusalem, the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, who had all come to hear and be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Now, something you might have missed earlier when we read it because we were focused on the names. In verse 13, just prior to this, it says, He called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them, whom he also designated to be apostles. What's that mean? Well, it means that up on the mountain, there was actually a large group of disciples who were there. And from that large group, Jesus selected 12 for everyone to see, he called them out. He set them apart from the rest of the disciples. And then as all of them came back down the mountain, they saw this big crowd that had gathered. They, did, they found this huge crowd of people there to come to hear Jesus and be healed. Now, this passage is the beginning of what the book of Luke calls the Sermon on the Plain. You might have that heading in your Bible. There's a really, really, really much more famous ser- a sermon in the book of Matthew that some of you might have heard of. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, that's right. Now, there's a lot of people, including scholars, who believe that these two sermons were actually one and the same, but they might have been. It's possible that they could have used different descriptions. 
The reason they believe is because there's so much similar content between the two. However, even though there's a lot of similarities, there are also some differences, some unique content to each. And if you'll go with me for just a moment, back with Jesus, he would speak with a group of people here. And then he would move to another group of people over here. Do you think maybe, just maybe, he wanted this group to hear the same thing that this group heard? Maybe he would teach some similar things from place to place because he's promoting a very specific message wherever he goes. I think it makes sense that he would be using some of the same material. And it was Jesus. So his material was really, really, really good. So why not use it again, right? I like to think that these are different messages to different people. And here's my most basic form of my argument. One author says it's on a mountain. One author says it's on a plane. In my mind, those are different. So I think they're different. But other people want to argue with that, whatever. Maybe I'm too simple. I don't know. Okay? Here we go. We're going to look at just two parts of this part of the message today, and then we'll continue on next week. Probably won't even finish it next week. The description of the kingdom of God. You might have even heard it this way before. We call it the upside-down kingdom. Now, before I get too far in it, I want to actually tell you, no, actually, it's the right side up. That's the right kingdom. It's the way it's supposed to be. Our world is the one that's upside down. But because we exist within this, we look at God's description of God's kingdom, and we call it the upside down kingdom. Because every one of its elements seems to be the exact opposite of what the world that we live in currently does. This teaching gives us guidance about today and how to live in a world which is full of discrimination, biases, conflicts, and worse, as we've seen this week. As a follower of Jesus, how do we live? How do we exist within this world? So he looks over the crowd, and it says specifically to his disciples. So remember, this message that he's preaching are to the people that are following him. And everyone else that's listening, he wants to convert them, but he's really talking to his followers here. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who, are, who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how your ancestors treated the prophets. Verse 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how the ancestors treated the false prophets. So let's go back and pair things up, the the blessing with the woe that match up. Verse 20, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Jesus is beginning his mission. And if you remember back a few weeks ago, if you were able to join us, he read from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he said he has come to bring good news to the poor. That's what he's doing. Blessed poor versus the woeful Rich. Now, understand God isn't necessarily calling us to be poor, though maybe he is. He probably isn't going to force us into some kind of economic disadvantage. In fact, he's probably blessed you so that you could then bless others with your economic advantages in life. But here he shares with us a a basic truth of the world. Physical poverty often leads to spiritual advantages. Why? Because their poverty encourages them to fully rely on God. And if any of you have ever visited a third world country of believers, you know what I'm talking about. The joy and peace they have because they don't have the worries we have of everyday life. Their worries where the next meal is going to come from. And they rely on God to provide that. While the rich, well, the rich seem to be at a disadvantage in their spirituality because there's a barrier. Wealth can sometimes put a barrier between them and God because they can rely on themselves, making it less necessary to rely upon God and put him first. In Matthew, there's another phrase that's, that's issued in here, and in Jesus specifically mentions the poor in spirit. Now, Luke absolutely might be making that reference here. Jesus might be saying the same type of thing we don't know for sure. But we can be very confident he is talking to the poor, the actually economically deprived people. We can be certain about that because they don't have much. Blessed are those who are suffering oppression and poverty at the hands of the rich. They trust in God for their salvation while the arrogant rich mock God's name and oppress his people. 
He's telling them that these poor will inherit the kingdom of heaven while the self-reliant, they've already received their reward in full here on this earth. Through these explanations, what Jesus is doing is he's committing to helping the poor, the present, his disciples right now, but he's promising a rich blessing for the future. All right, so hear that through these eyes. Verse 21, blessed are you who hunger for now, for you will be satisfied. Woe to you who are well fed for now, for you will go hungry. Again, it really appears that Jesus is talking to the physically poor in this world. As we know, poverty usually is partnered with hunger in this world. These were the people that were attracted to Jesus in his day. Some might say that those are the people who are still Attracted to Jesus. Some things don't change. Society had left them behind. Jesus had come to give them hope. I know for a fact there's somebody in this room or somebody watching online that has been there, that has been in poverty, that has been in a place in life where they did not know where their next meal was coming from. Somebody here has experienced that. And you're the only one in the room that can understand what this really means. When God provides for you and you feel that kind of comfort and that kind of satisfaction, when you're able to just get your next meal, you know. Later on in Luke, we'll see these words literally illustrated as a parable between a man called Lazarus, not the one he raised from the dead, and a rich man. We'll discuss that later on. What's really cool, though, is in the life of Luke, I want you to imagine this. As Luke is writing these words, he's following Paul all over creation on these missionary journeys as he's putting the gospel of Luke together. And as Luke is traveling, he is literally seeing these promises of Jesus come true. They are fulfilled right in his very eyes. He sees the church, the early church, sharing with one another. He sees the early church meeting one another's needs. Why? So that no one goes hungry. He's watching Jesus' words come to life right in front of his face. It's incredible to imagine him putting those pieces together. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Woe to you who laugh now, for you who mourn will, well, you will mourn and weep. Again, pairing it all together, the poor, the hungry. Yeah, there's some sadness that comes with that. They're upset. They're sad, absolutely, in this world. And Jesus wants them to know this. He did not create this world for them to live in it so they could physically suffer. That is not why God designed this place. As a matter of fact, he created this world to be able to provide more than could ever be consumed. Did you realize that? In this crazy modern world that we live in, we still create more food than we could ever consume on this planet. And yet what still happens? People across this planet go hungry every single day. God's need, God's promises, Jesus' words here still ring true to people in need today. He sees their need. He sees their tears. He sees their disappointment. He knows their pain. And he knows that that can all be turned to joy if, if they come into his presence. And that's where you and I come in. Our role is to usher them into his presence. How do we do that? By providing for their need, by showing them the love of Jesus. And even though the world might be attempting to steal our joy, it cannot. We've talked about this before. Joy doesn't come from this world. It's from the God alone. The joy of the Lord is my strength, as the old song goes. The final pairing, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they insult you, when they reject your name as evil because the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how the ancestors treated the false prophets. This is the final pairing, and it, it lets those that are listening know that in this world, if they choose to be his true disciples and follow him, then they're probably going to be hated. They're probably going to be excluded from some things. They might be insulted, rejected, discriminated against, ignored, or in our world today, canceled. Why? Why? Well, in their day, it was the religious leaders, the, the, the religious people the Jewish folks that were doing that. Then the church went on to blossom and it became the Roman Empire. That was a threat to them. Now, now it's as simple as just the public square, the, the court of public opinion. Your Jesus, his teachings, they're, they're really just not welcome anymore. 
And if you express your love for him, and oh my goodness, you try to actually live it out in your life, and dare you actually share who Jesus is and what he's done for you with someone else, then watch out. Because um, you might be labeled a religious fanatic of some kind. It's true. People might avoid conversations with you because you care so much about them. You might get blocked on social media. Oh, my goodness. Oh, or passed up for that promotion, maybe even fired. And Jesus says, when all of that happens, rejoice. Rejoice because our reward isn't here. It's in heaven. It's always been this way with the people of God. Go back as far as you want. The difference is they used to involve physical torture and murder, and they still do that in places in this world. Don't ever, ever discount that. In our culture, it hasn't got there yet. We get banned from social media. It doesn't really compare, does it, church? Now, Jesus lays all of this out, okay? These four blessings and these four woes, and here's what I want you to remember He's talking to a group, a crowd that identifies as the poor. Most of the people listening there that day would have, they would understand, they would identify with what Jesus was saying. And they could have easily heard Jesus, and and this might have been what they heard. Yes, we are going to be blessed. Second note, stick it to the rich. (laughs) Think about it. Look at all they've taken from us. Look at everything they've deprived of us. They're going to get theirs. That's what I just heard. I'm going to be blessed. They're going to get theirs. Can you feel the rivalry? Do you think there was a rivalry between the rich and the poor in Jesus' time? Is there still one today? (laughs) It will never go away. You can feel that dislike. You can feel that rivalry between those two groups. Jesus knows that. He knows people are only going to hear what they want to hear. And so as he preaches this sermon, he knows what they're thinking. And so what's he do? Well, he helps them then take the next step on their journey of faith with a challenge that they've never, ever heard before. And I want to ask the question I asked at the beginning of this section. I'm not going to do it over every verse, but some I will. This is one. What if Jesus never taught this? This next teaching, what if Jesus never spoke these words? What if this had never happened? Again, imagine the crowd But everybody that's listening, all you poor people, I I just want to tell you, um, love your enemies. Do good to those that hate you. Bless those that curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on the cheek, turn the other. If someone takes your coat, don't withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, don't demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. I'm just going to pause there for one second. Even sinners. Who's he talking to? Sinners. Everyone. There's no difference. Did anyone make that connection? If you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. If you lend to those whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid, but love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back, then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. But be merciful. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Now, maybe you've heard that teaching before. Probably you have. There's at least one verse in the middle that everyone in the room has heard before. Maybe you don't see that teaching as revolutionary in the world, because you know, you know, I know I'm supposed to love my enemies. Yeah, 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 I get it, Jesus. All right, so let's start with the crowd we're talking to here. And Jesus just got them all excited thinking about how they will be blessed and everyone else, <laughs> they're going to get theirs. Even through this life and all that they are going through, those people, those rich people that seem to have everything all together, they're going to get theirs one day. Jesus is going to stick it to them, so they thought. And then Jesus casually, by the way, as they start to get riled up and excited, he said, hey, um, all those folks that are oppressing you right now, um, all those people mistreating you, all those people that hate you, uh, I got one little thing for you. Um, I need you to love them. What? Not just tolerate them, not just put up with them, but love them. And I need to actually take action. I need you to actually pray 
for them, specifically by name, for those people. Pray that they're going to come to believe in me just as you have. Pray that they will have a change of heart and leave their sinful ways behind. There are four commands that Jesus gave us there. Did you hear them? Number one, love your enemies. Number two, do good to those that hate you. Number three, bless those that curse you. And number four, pray. Pray for those that mistreat you. These are commandments for us as followers of Jesus. These are not suggestions. These are who we are to be. And they are in opposition of every human tendency we have. We love revenge. We love payback. We love retaliation. We love retribution because that's fair. Yeah, fairness. That's what we want. We're in America. We want justice for all. So what Jesus is asking of us is actually very, very, very unfair, isn't it? It is. Then why on earth would Jesus be asking us to do something that's so unfair? One word. You won't need a pencil to write this down. You got this. You're smart people. Grace. One word. Grace. Because grace is not fair. If every one of us that call ourselves followers of Jesus received what we truly deserved from God... That would be death and eternal punishment apart from him. And that would be fair and just. But we have another option. We can choose to open the free gift, receive the free gift of grace from our God, which is made possible only through the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He lived an absolutely perfect life because we cannot. He died a horrific death so that we do not have to. He took what we deserve and offers us grace instead, which is not fair. Jesus goes on and he actually put these four commands into action over the course of his ministry. He loves us while we were still sinners. Some of you might have heard that verse before. Love your enemies. We were sinners. We were enemies apart from God. He did good for us. He took our place on the cross. That's beyond good, is it not? He's blessed us in more ways than we could ever imagine, even while we still live in our sin and make mistake after mistake. And not only did he pray for us specifically in John 17, look it up, he did, but he takes it a step further. And he doesn't just pray for us, no, no, he actually will come and he's willing to come and dwell within us through his spirit and guide us and direct us and protect us and empower us in this life that we live. The world up to that point in history when Jesus spoke those words had never heard a teaching like this. This was and is a radical change of teaching and living. And the world today isn't any closer to adopting it. Right now, in the middle of this text, there's a famous verse in there. It's actually one of the most famous words, some of the most famous words in the world. But people just don't know where it comes from. We call it the golden rule in our society do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But remember, from Jesus' perspective, this teaching is for believers. He doesn't expect those outside of him to really understand and grasp what this means. These words are not for others to follow, truthfully. We shouldn't expect them to. These commands are for us to demonstrate. Why? The goal. The goal is to transform an enemy of God into a friend of God through the example of love. So as we wrap it up, the question becomes, who is this in our life? Maybe you could look at, you know, I don't really have any enemies in my life. Like there's nobody I'm really fighting with per se. Okay, fair enough. I want you to examine your life, your daily, everyday life, your interactions. Who is it that you just don't like to be around? Who is it that seems to be an obstacle at every turn for you? Who is it that treats you poorly in your life? Who is it that when you see them or hear them, or even on TV, they just make your blood boil? All of the above, those are your enemies. You might not have declared war on them, but they are your enemies 
in your life. But here's the really twisted part, unfortunately. Jesus is speaking this to the poor who are enemies with the rich. There's an obstacle right there. They have separation. Jesus wants to bridge that gap. That's why he came. But we within the church, we, we say, well, this must be people outside of our faith. This must be people outside of our church. Isn't it sad that, yes, Jesus was talking to believers here and their opposition to those outside the church, but the reality is that opposition can exist within the church as well. Let it never be so. This should apply above and beyond within the church because if we can't get along, if we can't make Jesus the number one thing, the most important thing in our entire lives and overlook everything else, if we can't do that, then how on earth will the people outside this place see anything that's worth anything to them? They know us by our love for who? Each other. They will know you by your love for each other. That's our demonstration to this world. Maybe you're in a face of life right now where uh, you just need some encouragement. You are discouraged. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take verses 20 through 23, and I want you to own them. I want them to just claim them as your own because they are yours. They were spoken to you through the pen of Luke. Blessed are you. Great is your Reward. Use those words of Jesus to encourage you in this life. Your hope is in Jesus. It is not in the, this world. It is not in the way that other people treat you. Here's the problem we can have, believers. Sometimes this world then tricks us into then treating other people poorly. We can't allow it to do that. We must treat everyone as if they are dearly loved children of God, a creation of God. Because you know what? Though they're not truly his children yet until they come to him, he loves them as his own because he created them on purpose and for a purpose. And our prayer should be that they return to their creator. He put them in this world for a reason. We can't look past that. These teachings of Jesus that we're going to be studying for quite a while, man, they're beautiful. They're beautiful words. They're wonderfully written. I don't eloquently convey them. I apologize for that. But they mean nothing if we don't apply them. If we don't live them out, if we don't take his example and use it in our lives to show his love to others, then they're just words on a page. All of their beauty is lost. All their meaning and purpose is for naught. Don't ever let that happen. Don't let that be said of us. It is such a blessing to be worshiping with you this morning, to be studying the words of God with you this morning. But if we all walk out of here and forget these words, we never read them again. We don't dwell on them at lunch and beyond throughout this week. We don't spend time praying, God, who is my enemy? Who is it that I'm avoiding? Who do I need to reach out to? Who do I need to show his love? If I don't do that throughout this week, ah, ah, it just breaks his heart. Don't do that. Don't do that, Father God, as we transition into a time of communion where we remember the incredible sacrifice that you made. Father, never, ever, ever allow us constantly be there to remind us of who you were and what you did. Father, remind us of your teachings. We're not going to be able to remember every single one. We, we don't take the time to do that. We could. We could if we chose to. But Father, let us grab on to some of these truths and just one by one begin to live them out. Challenge us this week, Father. Take us this week. If we're right now sitting here like, I don't really have any enemies. There's nobody really that I, I really need to be thinking of. Father, whoever that is in our life, bring them in front of our face this week. <laughs> Help us realize, oh, I forgot about them. <laughs> Help us make that change in our lives so that we can better represent you in the lives of, to, to everyone who's living life around us. Father, we live in a, a crazy world in crazy times, and we're going to address that at the end of service. But Father, you came to bring peace. Peace, and it may not be a physical peace on this planet right now, but Father, you can absolutely provide peace in our hearts and our minds and our souls and our spirits. And that peace will only grow as we reach out to others with your love and we show them what that peace looks like. Father, there are people here this morning that need encouragement. I pray that they will come forward and allow us to pray over them. Father, there's people who already have identified that enemy or enemies in their lives. Maybe a friend, maybe a relative, maybe a former spouse, maybe a, a parent, who knows? It could be so many different types of people. And we've just refused to deal with it. Father, if they need prayer, 
and encouragement to help deal with that, then I pray that you bring them through your spirit to do that today. Father, we love you. And it is our joy to worship you now. Amen. Um, I wanted to do this at the beginning of service, but God led me in other directions. And so I suppose that meant that he wanted me to wait till the end of service. Um, and that's, that's just the way I look at it. Uh, his, his, he, he is in the details, y'all. I don't know if you realize that, but something as simple as my plan of just coming up and doing this at the beginning of service, he said, no, I, you just do that. I, I, I want you to wait and do it at the end. I'm, okay. Uh, don't get frustrated about it, Chris. Just, just go with it. Um, a lot of Christians should have been watching the news this week and asking, what do we do? What do we do? This isn't a political statement. This, isn't, this, is, a, this is a what do we do? And I do a lot of reading, and I've told you before, I'm a news junkie. And um, whether you can believe what's in the news or not believe what's in the you know what? That's neither here nor there. We live in a different world today than we did last Sunday. Okay? We just do. That's just the reality of it. Um, it's as evil as it ever was, but the world, the dynamics have changed. And so as believers, we ask ourselves, what do we do in this moment? Um, and there are some very specific things that we can do in this moment. And as I was reading um, throughout this week through newsletters, just all, all kinds of information, uh, even uh, that map that you see on the wall out there on the right, the big missions map, that wood, hand-carved wood map, guess where that was made? Ukraine. Um, I got an email from the company, the family, actually, that, <laughs> that makes those. Um, just so you know, this is real. Like, this isn't some fictitious thing. And so as believers, um, we can disengage. We can say, you know what, that's over there. We're over here. Yeah, that's why that pond's between us. It's okay. It's not a big deal. Um, it's why we, we're over here. Well, you could, you could do that, I guess. Um, but as a believer, you can't. As a believer, you can't. Uh, there's about 44, between 41 and 44 million people that live in that country. Best estimates are 71% of that country claims the name of Christ. 71%. <laughs> that's, that's, that's 32 million brothers and sisters. <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen in five minutes. Christians, we should be concerned. <laughs> we should be praying for those people. And you ask, well, what do we pray? Well, it just so happens in, in my reading this week that I got an email. I couldn't even tell you who it was from. But this email said, this is what a lot of people, I don't know if it's a church propagating it over there, I don't know who it is, but there's a lot of people in Ukraine right now, believers in Christ, that are praying the 31st Psalm. And so I got it out, and I read it, and I thought it would be a really appropriate way for us to end the service, is to listen and or read, if you have it, the 31st Psalm together. There's a particular verse in there that they were drawn to. Um, let me find it. It's toward the end. It is, oh goodness, I thought it was 14, but I don't see it at 14. It's farther than that. Um, anyway, there's a specific verse. We'll read the whole thing here in a moment. Oh, there it is, verse 21. Praise be the, to the Lord, for he showed us his wonderful love to me when I was besieged in a city. Yeah, there's people being besieged in the city right now that are claiming the name of Christ. Do we understand what we have? We are to mourn with those who mourn, church. We are, we are, we are to, to be with them in spirit. And there might be other ways we can help too, but this is the beginning. This is the top level priority is being prayer. And so let's just look at this 31st Psalm together. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me. In your righteousness, turn your ear to me. Come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. Put yourself in their context as we read these words, church. We're safe here. They're not. Since you are my rock and my fortress for the sake of your name, lead and guide me, free me from the trap that is set for me. For you are my refuge. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Redeem me, O Lord, the God of truth. I hate those who cling to worthless idols. I trust in the Lord. I will be glad and rejoice in your love. For you saw my affliction and knew the anguish of my soul. 
You have not handed me over to the enemy, but you have set my feet in a spacious place. Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and body with grief. My life is consumed by anguish, my years by groaning. My strength fails because of my affliction and my bones grow weak. Because of all my enemies, I am under contempt of my neighbors. I am a dread to my friends. Those who see me on the street flee from me. I am forgotten by those as though I were dead. I have become like broken pottery, for I hear the slander of many. There is terror on every side. They conspire against me. They plot to take my life, but I trust in you, O God. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. Deliver me from my enemies and from those who pursue me. Let your face shine on your servant. Save me from your, in your unfailing love. Let me not be put to shame, O Lord, for I have cried out to you, but let the wicked be put to shame let the, and lie in silent in the grave, for their lying lips will be silenced, for with pride and contempt they speak many arrogantly falsely against the righteous. How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you bestow in the sight of men, on those who take refuge in you, in the shelter of your presence, you hide them from the intrigues of men. In your dwelling, you keep them safe from accusing tongues. Praise be to the Lord, for he showed his wonderful love to me when I was in a besieged city. In my alarm, I said, am I cut off from your sight? Yet you heard my cry for mercy when I called to you for help. Love you, the Lord, all his saints. The Lord pres preserves the faithful, but the proud he pays back in full. Be strong and take heart, all you who hope in the Lord. I just ask you as, as they come to mind, as everyone involved comes to mind and who knows what's to come, just go to that chapter. Just leave it open wherever, leave it open on your phone. Pray over it throughout the week, and I, I don't know how God does this, but I, I, I got this feeling like anytime one of us picks up this and read, someone over there feels that we're praying that prayer for them. <laughs> Who knows, maybe we'll meet him one day. If not on this side, we will for sure on the other, right? Father God, as we close today, most of us in the room can't imagine what's going on. There's a select few that have been a part of war, and they know all too well. I pray for those individuals as these things happen because we know they can have an impact on their lives as well, remembering things of the past that they would rather not remember. If we can be an encouragement to our own brothers and sisters who have fought, Father, open that door to us. Open our eyes to see their need in these moments as they might be trying to hide it. But Father, as we lift up those so far, so far away from us, our brothers and sisters in Christ, the innocent victims that don't know you yet. Father, may we be your faithful, praying church and do whatever we can to support those in harm's way. None of us in this room know what that looks like. But if we genuinely, truly believe, praying that you will answer this prayer, then you will open the doors that need to be opened to us to help in ways that we never dreamed. Father, let us respond appropriately. We love you. We thank you for your word, these words of David as he was going through such a rough time. We pray them over our brothers and sisters in Christ that right now are, are going through unthinkable circumstances. And we know you're with them. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.